Hello, and welcome to the Lambos or Food Stamps episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. Emily Peck of Axios is here. She hates this so much. I protest. I formally protest the title of this podcast. It's offensive. It is offensive. We're going to go dark in this show. I am Felix Salmon of Axios, and we Gen X Axions are being joined this week by Ginevra Davis. Ginevra, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Introduce yourself, Ginevra. What brings you to this show? I am a senior at Stanford uh, studying symbolic systems, which is basically like computer science, philosophy, linguistics. Weird major Stanford invented. And I uh, write for Palladium Magazine about crypto and culture. And I recently published an article called When the Stagnation Goes Virtual about decadence in NFT culture. So we are going to talk to you about that. We are going to talk to you about the darkness at the heart of Gen Z and how terrifyingly nihilistic the vision is these days. And it's an amazing conversation, which we're going to actually continue in the Slate Plus because there's so much of it and it's so rich. We are also, however, going to talk about the news. We are going to talk about the sanctions that companies are imposing on Russia and why they're doing that and what they hope to achieve by it. And I am going to have a little rant as well about the London Metals Exchange and the nickel market and whether the LME should have suspended trading in nickel. It is a packed show and it's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, Emily, let's start with sanctions. We haven't really gone into a lot of detail on the astonishing degree of especially corporate sanctions that are being imposed on Russia right now. We've had a whole bunch of household brands, Starbucks, McDonald's, Nike, H&M, those kind of people pulling out of Russia and saying they're not going to do business there anymore. This isn't because they have to, right? This is because they want to. Yeah, it's really been interesting to watch sanctions progress. The ones enacted by the EU and the US are already unprecedented, fast moving. They cut off some banks from SWIFT. They don't let financial transactions happen. Russia can't really use the financial system um, globally. But then this other thing started happening, I guess really accelerated this week, where, yeah, U.S. companies, all kinds of companies, McDonald's, Pepsi, Facebook, are like, "We, we won't operate in Russia anymore, and they're essentially boycotting the country. They're like going um, and doing their own sanctions. Uh, but I don't see how they had much of a choice because this this war happened so quickly. It's so universally condemned. There's so much moral outrage. It feels like companies didn't need to waffle. Someone called it a triumph of on the phone to me this week a triumph of stakeholder capitalism, which we can talk about. Oh my god. Out that person. <laughs> Who was it? Was it Jim Vanderhey? No, no. It was a fellow at 
the conference board because um, I said, is this ESG? Because Matt Levine has been calling this like an ESG, that all these companies are t- bravely taking a stand against um, the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Like, how hard is it to take a stand against something so terrible? The triumph of stakeholder capitalism, McDonald's temporarily closing its 900 and something, you know, fast food restaurants in Russia um, and, and really like cutting Russia out of the, of the global financial system. So what's the theory of the case here? I understand governments imposing sanctions on bad countries, whether it's Venezuela or Iran or North Korea, something like that. And they're like, we're going to cut you off from the um, financial system as kind of punishment for being bad. And then if you're good, you know, we have like a carrot we can wave in front of you and say like, we will reverse these sanctions and they can get imposed centrally by governments, and they can get lifted centrally by governments. This is different. Governments have not been telling corporations to boycott Russia. In fact, weirdly, they've been going around telling certain corporations to not boycott Russia. Like Shell, for instance, bought a bunch of Russian oil. Everyone got up in arms, and then the CEO of Shell was like, oh, I apologize profusely. It'll never happen again. I'm not going to buy any more Russian oil anymore. But the reason why he bought Russian oil is because, you know, Joe Biden and the EU and everyone was saying, like, please keep on buying Russian oil. We need the Russian oil. So there's actually a bit of a tension. What you have is this thing, and I love this term, and I need to bring it out, called overcompliance, where where companies see sanctions and they kind of see where the puck is moving And they're like, we're going to get ahead of this and try and be ahead of the curve. And it doesn't actually cost us anything because what are we going to do with a whole bunch of ruble revenues anyway? We can't convert the rubles back into dollars. The rubles are worthless. We don't know how to price anything in rubles. We can't import things into Russia. It doesn't hurt them too much to, to shut down in Russia. And it also gives them ESG brownie points, I guess. And it makes them look, you know, like they're supporting Ukraine somehow. But... But what's does it serve any actual purpose in terms of like, you know, does anyone think that like Putin is going to be upset that he can't get his Big Mac tomorrow? No, I really think it's about these brands. They want their like social media moment. And then none of them none of them want to be behind. And like you said, it doesn't hurt them. And it and it helps. I feel like if you're a brand that's online, um, you kind of have to you have to play with the you have to play with the discourse now. And so they they want their they want their big they want their big moment in the sun and they want their big moral stand. I feel like on some level this started with Sonnenfeld at Yale. I can't remember. I think it was somewhere at Yale put up a website basically saying these are the companies still operating in Russia, and the CEOs would like phone up Yale and say, "No, we're pulling out. Take us off the list because no one wants to be on that list of companies operating in Russia." And it is presumptively a bad look to be a company still operating in Russia. Ginevra, maybe you can explain, like, do you think it's bad to continue operating in Russia? And if so, why? Like you said, I don't think Putin cares. I don't think he cares about his people. I think that's been pretty clear. Probably, like, if McDonald's closing in Russia is going to have much more of an impact on the Russian people than anything that Putin or his nebulous affiliates care about. And so I do think, like, it's not a commentary on the justness of the war in Russia, but in terms, and maybe maybe you can, like, make a larger point that having all of these companies that people have heard of pull out pulls out like underscores the seriousness of what's going on but i think it's probably more of a like there, i think Nate Silver just tweeted about this yesterday that there was like a concert hall in Montreal that like canned a performance with a russian piano sol- soloist because they'd gotten some pushback just for having a a russian play piano and they thought that the optics were bad even though the guy was like pro-Ukraine, I think it falls more in that category of people just want to be extra sure that they're on the right side, not going to have any blowback, don't want to have any unnecessary issues from this. And they're not really thinking about the impact on the actual war or the actual Ukrainians. Yeah, this this worries me, I have to say. Like the animus towards all Russians. You know, I have... Russian friends who, like, literally every single one of them opposes the war. And if I was a Russian in New York or London or, you know, anywhere right now, except for Russia, pretty much, I would be kind of scared, you know? Like, we, we you remember how there was that uptick in 
anti-Asian violence just when people thought that COVID came from China. Imagine like the kind of opprobrium and, and violence even that Russians are going to start worrying about right now for something they have no control over and probably oppose. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about about sanctions. They're sort of, they're useful, useless tools of war. I mean, first of all, like you said, Felix, there should be some kind of carrot. Like sanctions are useful as as a as leverage, as a tool in negotiations. But there's no negotiating right now right now with Vladimir Putin. And and typically, sanctions only work as a as a negotiating tactic if you're offering to pull them back if X happens. Like that's what um, happened with Iran during the Obama administration. There were really tough sanctions and they said, we'll pull these back if you talk to us. And that's kind of how it played out. But that's that's not really the scenario now. And it seems like instead of like the like that US- is, I mean, I feel like with the government sanctions, that's kind of the, the, the long game here that like we impose the sanctions as punishment for um, invading. And then if and when you ever want to start getting back in the good graces of the international community, we will be willing to negotiate and say like, okay, you can have your central bank reserves back just so long as you do A, B, C, and D, and probably there's some kind of new president in Russia or something like that. I mean, it might take a long time, but it's, it's something that governments can do. But what governments can't do is say like, as, as Matt Levine said, what governments can't do is say, okay, BP buy that 20% stake in Rosneft back. You know, once they sell their stake in Rosneft, it's sold, it's done, it's over. Right. That's what I was going to continue to say was these sanctions keep getting harsher and harsher. That sends a signal to other actors like private companies to jump on board the sanctions train and do these kinds of actions, which might not be reversible once these companies pull out, getting them to go back isn't isn't going to be a thing. And like there's just fallout throughout the financial sector and the business sector now, like this morning, BlackRock announced it lost $17 billion on Russian securities. Like even if the U.S. undoes undoes, undoes sanctions, I don't know if these companies go back and like Russia becomes a hot emerging market again. Like the damage is is permanent in a lot of ways, right? I mean, once the sanctions start rolling, you can't just roll them back. One of the purposes of sanctions is to you know, prevent Putin from invading in the first place, because if he invades, then there's going to be a bunch of permanent damage to his economy. Of course, like, the idea is that it's preventive, it didn't work. But like, but but you have to, you know, be like, on some level, you have to make good on that threat. Otherwise, no one's going to believe you next time. Um, but but like, so like, I can see why, you know, there was a case for causing this kind of damage to the Russian economy. Um, but like the Russian economy has been running a massive trade surplus for, for years now. It doesn't need a lot of foreign investment. Um, what it does need is imports because its trade surplus is all in the form of energy and wheat and stuff. And we can talk maybe about commodities in the next section. But like, um, but yeah, they need to import stuff. And then if you put sanctions in, on exporters to Russia, um, if people are exporting food and clothes to Russia and say like um you know if those people start boycotting Russia that really hurts the Russian population and while I'm all in favor of boycotting oligarchs and I have no sympathy with the Chelsea football club fans who are like we're never going to be able to win another trophy so long as our football club is sanctioned I'm like yeah Crimea ever you know I I do think that um punishing ordinary Russians in this way by saying, like, we're just not going to supply goods to Russia anymore serves very little actual purpose. And yet, it does seem to be the the case that public opinion in the West really wants these companies to do this. It's very supportive of these current companies in, in, in doing this. The other thing about sanctions is that they often backfire, especially when they hurt citizens. So, there's a moral question of like, you don't want to hurt regular Russian citizens and cut off their access to things that they need. And then the second order thing is basically like leaders will then blame 
people's hardship on the other country that you're at war with. And instead of making people turn against Putin and Russia, they make them more resolved to be at war. So they kind of backfire in that regard as well. Most people feel pretty strongly that they don't want to go in the war, but there's a sense that they want to intervene somehow. And if so, if your best outlet of intervening is to campaign to McDonald's to have them impose sanctions and you can tweet at them on Twitter, that makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're doing something, makes you feel involved. You can end up with a sort of a, a proxy war from the citizens who want to feel like, oh, we're we're contributing, we're doing something. Look, like, you know, all we're, we're, all, we're all pulling out, but it's not really financially uh financially sound yeah there, there really is a feeling of something must be done this is something therefore this must be done about this whole thing i don't think it's going to make a huge difference one way or the other to be honest you know if russians stop drinking pepsi for the next however long like that's okay they can get by without pepsi i do think that if there was a way of banning cigarette <laughs> imports into russia Maybe that Putin would, would have that. massive <laughs> right. effects and would topple the government <laughs> overnight um we will see whether the chinese do that because a lot of the imports come from china we will see whether that happens because the chinese have started to stop buying certain russian exports and have started to stop providing russia with certain imports um and so like i think that's the big next shoe to drop in terms of sanctions is how China's going to get, how and whether China is going to like ratchet things up. Can you talk more about that actually? Because I don't really understand what China is actually doing. Because some days I read statements that they're kind of on the side of Russia and other days, no. Um, I know that they need the US and the EU markets to sell into. They can't just like be on team Russia. So I, I just don't really understand. Well, like the the US and the EU are definitely ne never going to sanction China, right? So like that's that's never going to happen. Even never, if China, no matter what they do, even if they invade Taiwan, that's not going to happen, right? Like we need China too much. It's just it's too incorporated into the global system. They're not an aggressor here. They haven't done anything wrong here. We're not going to start p punishing China for not punishing Russia. But it does look like. China is beginning to punish Russia, not as harshly as the US and the EU, but they are moving in that direction. They are imposing certain sanctions of their own. While at the same time, you're absolutely right, really kind of massaging the news that ordinary Chinese people get to make it seem not that bad what Russia is doing. There's like a there's like this weird sort of information slash censorship thing that the Chinese are doing. Which I think you're right. It's probably, if you had to put it on the spectrum, say it, it would be pro-Russia. The, the censorship is very similar to what the Russians are doing in terms of how they're presenting the war and the sort of fake, false things that they're saying. I, I do think that ordinary Chinese people can get at the truth of the matter in the way that ordinary Russians increasingly cannot. Um, but the main state, media outlets in Russia do seem to be pro, sorry, the main state media outlets in China do seem to be pro-Russia, even as the state itself seems to be moving a little bit anti-China. So I think it is like very fluid right now. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and... 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This is my favorite story of the week, and I want to nerd out about this. <laughs> Emily, give us the big TLDR here. Earlier this week, something called the London Metal Exchange, where people exchange metals commodities. Um, They halted trading in nickel, which until this week I did not realize is a very important commodity that goes in um, batteries for electric vehicles and is used to make stainless steel. And Russia makes a lot, a lot of nickel. And because of the war, because of the sanctions, there's less nickel in the world because Russia can't sell the nickel. There was already apparently a shortage of nickel in December before all of this even started. Blah, blah, blah. This Big Chinese nickel guy had a lot, um, what did he have? A futures contract, right? On nickel prices. Nickel prices started going up. There was a, a short squeeze. And instead of letting this kind of all happen and letting lots of people lose money and make money as as one is supposed to in a market, the London Metal Exchange halted trading and let everything kind of get sorted out in the first metals trade freeze since the collapse of the international tin cartel in 1985, which I obviously knew all about already. What I was trying to learn about is, is it typical for a market to halt a short squeeze? I thought that it was more of like a like Robin Hood GameStop situation where they just like stepped in because it seemed too weird. But then I saw in a couple of places that they do have an obligation to stop a short squeeze. Was that just like an executive decision they made? The weird thing is also they canceled the, trade, the trades before. Oh yeah, they canceled all the trades that day. Yeah, so so there are two questions there and very simple answers to both questions. First, do exchanges have an obligation to step in and prevent short squeezes? Answer, absolutely not. That is not an obligation whatsoever. It is something they can do, but it's not something they're obliged to do. Second question, is it remotely normal for exchanges to step in and just say like that entire day's trades are now canceled and you thought you made a bunch of money and you didn't? No, that is very uncommon and rare and out of the usual. And again, it is something they can do, but they are not obliged to do. So what actually happened in this case was that a bunch of people who were on the long side of nickel, for whatever reason, wound up thinking that they'd made a whole bunch of money on Tuesday because prices went up to $100,000 a ton. And then those trades got canceled and they were told, actually, you didn't make a whole bunch of money on Tuesday. And they got crossed and upset. And so... There is a bunch of anger and vitriol being directed at the LME from people like Cliff Asnes, who's a famous short seller. James McIntosh has a very, very clearly argued column in the Wall Street Journal this week, which we'll link to, and I highly recommend that people read to understand this side, basically saying these are markets. You have to like you have to let markets be markets, otherwise you're defeating the whole purpose of them. And what LME did was incredibly wrong and they should never have done it. And if you've made lots of money, you should have that money. You can't just have that money confiscated by a capricious exchange. And that is so convincing, Felix. That is a very convincing argument. I'm like, yeah, you can't just cancel this is this is cancel culture run amok. You can't just <laughs> cancel the trades this is it seems wrong and though i cringe when someone writes moral hazard in anything he seems to have a a point but you're you say no you say it's all wrong i think he's totally wrong about this and i think the lme made exactly the right decision here and there's a bunch of different moving parts here and i don't know how many of them i'm gonna get to because it's complex but The first thing we have to understand here is that markets exist for a reason. And the first most important purpose of markets is this thing called price discovery. Basically, we don't know how much something is worth unless you have a whole bunch of people buying and selling it and finding a a market clearing price. And when you do have a market clearing price, that is the world's 
the best mechanism that we have in the world is not a very good mechanism, but it's the best that we have for working out objectively how much something is really worth, whether it's a stock or a bond or a future or anything like that. And mostly what markets do is they act as price discovery mechanisms. What happened this week in the nickel market was that price discovery went completely haywire. And the price of nickel's futures contracts, which is the standard thing that people quote when they're talking about the price of nickel, went through the roof. There was unprecedented daily rise in in the in the price of that contract. And what that then created was a bunch of reporters coming out and saying, like, nickel is worth a hundred thousand dollars a turn. Like, you know, the nickel in your nickel, your five cent coin, is is worth more than the nickel and all of this kind of stuff. Because like as though like this principle of price discovery, where all you need to do is take the last, you know, most recent trade on the LME and that is the objectively true price and value of nickel. Like, even though that trade is clearly the result of a completely bizarre short squeeze and doesn't re- doesn't reflect any kind of fundamentals, that is the price of nickel, and we all have to just respect that as the price. Of course it's not, right? That's not... Like, the LME is a place for two different things to happen. One is it's a place for speculators to speculate. You get a bunch of traders who understand the market and are constantly positioning themselves and trying to make money and sometimes they may win and sometimes they lose. And that is what, you know, Adair Turner calls a socially useless activity. That that really doesn't help anyone do anything. That's a bunch of hedge funds that we have no real particular sympathy for. The other thing it is is a genuinely important way for nickel producers and metal producers to be able to get some predictability in what they do. Commodities prices are notoriously volatile. You are mining a bunch of nickel today and you want to make sure that you know that you can pay your payroll tomorrow. And so what you do is you lock in a future price for your nickel. So you're like, I am a Chinese nickel producer. I am producing, you know, a million tons of nickel. So I'm going to enter into a contract to provide that million tons of nickel at a certain price in like a few months time. And that means I've locked it in, I can be sure I'm getting that price. The problem is that the way you do that is effectively by going short nickel in the futures market. You're long nickel in like the real world because you're a nickel miner and you hedge that long by going short in the futures market. In the you know when everything balances out you're flat it's fine but because of the way that market mechanisms work that short you have in the market is subject to margin calls and if the price in the market goes up a lot then you can wind up being asked for massive margin calls which means you need a huge amount of liquidity and you can wind up going bankrupt before you can actually deliver the nickel And that is a bug, not a feature. That is a problem with this market. And that's basically exactly what happened in the LME this week, is that the people who are using the LME for the purpose for which it was really intended, which is being able to make their businesses more efficient, wound up suddenly being faced with these massive margin calls, which they couldn't meet because they didn't have the liquidity. And those margin calls were not just socially useless, they were socially harmful. They had they ran the risk of completely blowing up a whole bunch of not only like brokers, but even like nickel producers and making the world worse in terms of like its ability to produce nickel for EV batteries and stainless steel and everything else. And at that point, you're like, fuck the hedge funds. Like, okay, fine. The hedge funds wanted to make money and they thought they made money and they didn't make money, you know, and we tore up their trades. But the point is that the LME had failed at both of its main purposes. It had failed at price discovery because no one thought that this was the real price of nickel. And it had failed at effectively allowing nickel producers to be able to hedge their production. Once it's failed at both of those things, yes, suspend trading, tear things up, try and get things back to normal, because it is at that point not doing any good at all. And in fact, it's doing harm. 
all the articles that I read were making so much hay out of, oh, why was Ting Shan taking nickel shorts? They're a nickel producer, but they were taking nickel shorts. I don't know, something's going on here. And it sounds pretty basic, but I think that it's easy to take these events and try to fit them into some larger narrative. Why would hedge fund, I mean, there's a piece in, in Bloomberg and the hedge fund people are like, we're never going back to LME. And I'm kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Because they're in there to do their socially useless speculating. And if they can't do that, or they know now that there are limits to that activity, why would they come back? And does LME need them? Really good questions. I would say, first of all, like, I'll believe it when I see it. Like, they can they can plaster and say, I'm never going back to the LME. Yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. You know you are. You're just, you're just like, you know, you're just saying that. There was this one guy who's like, I'm going to stop trading copper on the LME. It's like, they're not going to suspend copper contracts. Of course, you're going to continue trading copper on the LME. That's how you make your money. But if he is literally not trading copper on the LME in a year's time, I will totally eat my hat. Of course he is. Does the LME need them? Maybe. All exchanges need liquidity providers, right? You need market makers to have a bid and an offer in whatever contract you're dealing in so that people like a Chinese nickel producer can come in and hedge their production. It is very difficult to have a market which is purely made up of real-world end users. The intermediaries and the speculators and the hedge funds and the market makers and the brokers – they do serve a purpose. So, yes. I mean, does the LME need all of them? No. Could, in fact, a bunch of these little small brokers have gone bust if they couldn't make their margin calls and it would have been kind of okay? Yes. But in the grander scheme of things, as I was trying to say, like these market makers, these hedge funds have to understand that the liquidity providing that they're doing, the service that they're providing – they're doing it for a reason. And when that reason goes away, then it makes sense for people to like temporarily stop it. And I'm sorry, but brokers and hedge funds, this is what they do is manage risk, right? They, they are constantly obsessed with every single conceivable risk that they are facing, including counterparty risk, including central counterparty exchange risk. They have known all along that there is a risk that contracts can get suspended, that trades can be reversed. This is 100% a known risk in the market. Anyone who's suddenly acting all naive and saying, I had no idea they could do this, is completely bullshitting. It was unlikely, but you knew it was possible. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, Geneva, we needed to we need to talk to you about like generational things, if that's okay. Because Emily and I have successfully, in my own view, turned Slate Money into a safe space for Gen X. This is very much a Gen X podcast. Just, you know, cards on the table here. And we've had a lot of millennials on. We're not going to say anything what we think about them. But like, I want to know. I, I want to I want to phrase this actually in the context of what we were just talking about in terms of these like five sigma events, crazy unexpected things that happen in the world, which the past twenty years has seen a lot of. Right, we've seen you know like as a financial journalist, I can remember like the crazy like nineteen ninety eight emerging market crisis. Then there was 
9-11, then there was like the tequila crisis, then there was the financial crisis of 2008, which was all around the world. There was COVID, you know, happening, which just like came out of nowhere and brought the entire planet to a stop. And I look back on, you know, the past, basically, what do you call it, 21 years, and see just crazy after crazy. And I can basically, because I'm an old, I can say, wow, the past 20 years have been crazy and not normal. But like, if that is your entire life, how does that feel? Do you feel like you're living in a crazy world? Or do you feel like this is just what life is? I think, um, I think with, I'll, I'll just like start with the financial crisis. I think for me, 1998, I wasn't alive then, not super relevant. 9-11, um, that was my, I do actually remember 9-11 because it was my preschool open house visit. And so I remember the day and I later learned that that day was 9-11. So I think there's some, there's some split, like you're a millennial if you remember 9-11 and you're like Gen Z if you, if you don't. And so I always say I'm really, really in this in-between group because I remember 9-11, but I didn't realize that it was 9-11. So so like it to me it's not it's a, it was it's an even gay for another for other reasons that I learned like four years after when I was like it was seven. really important to you because it was what chose your preschool it was my preschool and then I learned later oh yeah by the way all those people came to your house they didn't know it was nine eleven my mom did she was freaking out it was a whole thing I think my big my first big like financial or like financial global event that I had exposed to was really the financial crisis I think that shaped particularly my little micro generation of like kind of pre like peak Gen Z, but also definitely not millennial a lot because we were really brought up with this narrative of like the stupid millennials. It's the stupid millennials, the entitled millennials. They kind of got what was coming for them. They were taking selfies. They were, you know, studying the humanities. They were taking out all this crazy debt. They were so spoiled. They were eating their avocado toast. And now look what happened to them. They can't afford a house. They're becoming dog moms. They're not serious adults. They can't, they're not adulting. Oh my God. And so I was like constantly raised in this background backdrop of Impl not explicitly, but implicitly, don't be like these people. Don't be irresponsible. Don't and and I I I know it's 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 really. I actually just, I saw. Wait wait. I and this, is, this. Are these attitudes what? you inherited from your like Gen X parents? Um, not as much from my parents, but like my my dad was. My dad's a really big, really 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 into politics, really into the news, and I used to figure skate, and so we would drive, like, an hour there and an hour back every day, and he would have the news on the entire time, like, NPR constantly. And so I was just, like, really raised with this ambiance of the economy, the economy, the economy, the jobs, and then the backdrop to this was this this failed generation that the news at the time was very, even, even in, like, even given the economic context, I at least came across to me as, like, very harsh on these kids it was not the narrative wasn't oh oh i'm so sorry you graduated into a recession it was the peak of the kind of like annoying millennial discourse of and that sort of combined that and there were a lot of you watch like girls that kind of like i watched girls when i was younger like a um lena dunham's show uh, the sort of annoying entitled failure to launch not fully an adult adult millennial and i think partially it's my personality, but also pretty, pretty common really with kids my age are very, very like hyper practical, hyper focused and, and really just obsessed with, and I, I kind of get into this in a little bit in the article, obsessed with jobs and this idea of getting a job and getting a real job and getting a serious job. Like I might be a little bit biased coming out of Stanford, but like the sort of day one pressure people talking about salaries and consulting and investment banking and private equity and hedge funds really really kind of like abstract technical jobs that like no kind of self no normal 18 year old would be like yeah I want to be like a Deloitte consultant when I grow up like this is not like a normal thing to be excited about but I went to college like, with people like that you yeah. did, yeah. You did. But it's 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 now. I feel like like in a trickling down into high school too. Just like the insane college admissions pressure. Um, it's just very very normal to like just build your entire life essentially on like this on on, on trying to trying to not be poor essentially. And there and then there's this even with inflation now. And I 
people talk, people are starting to talk about it now, but it's really felt like this for a while that there's this constant sense that like, no matter what you do, it's not going to be enough unless you have some sort of crazy, crazy, crazy financial outcome, in which case you're going to be doing great. And I think this is part of the reason why we're seeing so many young people put their money in crypto is because if you're making like even a really good sort of six figure salary out of college, the the message that you're getting and then the reality of the market is that it's not going to be enough to, you know, buy like a a nice apartment in a place that a young person might want to live and like, you know, don't forget about like forget about a family or like, you know, going out to eat with your friends. And so I think you're seeing people who are willing to there's this sort of like little phrase in crypto or I don't know, a couple of meme accounts I follow, sort of like Lambo or food stamps. Like they're willing to take these crazy, crazy bets with their money because the message they're getting is that their stable, dependable salary that they've worked so hard for through high school, through college isn't going to be enough. Um, and so I think that's why you're seeing some of this kind of odd financial behavior from, and I would put like in this sense, I would put kind of millennials and Gen Z, young, young, young Gen Z, the ones who have the money to be investing in crypto kind of in the same category um, where there's this there's this sense that following the normal path isn't going to be, it's just, it's not good enough. And that the things that your parents talk about, like, oh, we, I got, I got a job. And then suddenly I had a house and a wife and a family. Like that's, it doesn't, it doesn't feel realistic anymore. I think for a lot of Gen Z's also, that's really frustrating because like I said, like in my generation, we sort of thought we were smarter than the millennials. Like we thought that when it was our time, we would, we would figure it out and we would major in computer science and we would like do everything right. And just with the, with, with inflation now, that's not really how it feels anymore. So do you, just your generation, just go ahead and speak for the whole, the whole generation, but. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, oh yeah. <laughs> also just like, this is also my perspective coming from like a lot of, a lot of my friends are, you know, coming from Stanford. A lot of my friends are in tech or VC or, are sort of selected as a motivated group. But I think you can also sort of like an induction element where it's like, if even this group is having a hard time or feels like they're having a hard time, it's kind of scary to think about the non, the people who don't have all those advantages or haven't sort of structured, structured their life this way. If even I have friends who are worried about, you know, feel very financially insecure. And do you think it's like a trauma response to the great recession? I mean, you, you must've been, like 10 years old or something. Yeah, I have this really funny memory of my my dad asking me, like, what do you think is, I was like 11. He was like, what do you think is like the biggest problem facing the country? Because he was like, di- he was like disagreeing with someone on the radio. And then he sort of, I was like, oh, I think that guy sounds good. And then he was like, well, what do you think it is? And I was like, uh, the economy. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, the economy. People are talking about the economy. It's a really big problem. And he was like, not like, he was like, well, the economy will get better. Like, there are really big problems like climate change. That's that's a real problem. Um, and I guess I've I've always sort of been waiting to be proved wrong on the economy being the biggest problem. <laughs> I still think I do think like climate change is the bigger problem. But I th- I think there's an element of the trauma response. But I also think there's an element of a lot of these jobs you get now. Just what you're. Like what, even if you do like investment banking, right, it's like the salaries are way, way, way lower than they used to be, particularly for the amount of work. Are they? No, but it's, it's true. Like if, if you're looking, if you're, yeah, yeah. I mean, no. if, if you're looking at the, yeah, I have friends whose parents are bankers and then, you know, it's like Goldman Sachs, like, uh, I don't know, 1960 or something would have like a investment, like a analyst class of 10. Now it's like 500. Where do you think that's going? It's 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 different. It's harder to get these sort of jobs that will like wait, wait, lead so. you the, up through what lead, f- lead finish you, that lead, thought. The, the the are you saying that the five hundred people who go into Goldman Sachs now are getting paid less than the ten people who went in, into Goldman Sachs in the nineteen sixties? Because I definitely don't think that's true. Yes. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's because, I mean, they're, they're, they're younger, but there's the, if you, if you stick or if you stick around, it's still pretty good. But the, the early, the earlier, the earlier rungs, it's not, it's not, it's means it's not, it's not that, it's not that much. If you're not, I mean, I just, I, this is my experience from my friends. I mean, I've seen their, I've seen their, I've seen their offer letters and then I've heard their parents talk about what it was like when they did the same thing. And they're like, this is really, really different. Um, and again, that's at the top end. So you work down. And then there's this, 
I think there's another element where the the jobs now are less, they have less of this, like, um, it's like no one's going to, no one's, no one's, they're, they're these sort of big, amorphous firms. They tend to bottom, they tend to, um, there's not as much of a culture. It's harder to find a mentor. It's harder to find someone who's going to support you. I think it's gotten worse with remote work. Um, so tell me, like, yeah. if you look back over the past, say, five years, which most of us, you know, economic journalists think that most of the past five years have been really healthy in terms of the economy. We've had a very good, healthy, strong economy. You look at the past five years and like, you know, take out the spring of 2020 for obvious reasons. But like, when you look back upon the, those past five years, would you say no, actually, the, the economy has been bad the whole time? I don't think it's been bad if you were in tech. It's been incredible if you were in tech. If you're doing anything that's touching tech, like it was so, it's still so easy to raise money. Like I think like three raccoons in a Stanford sweatshirt could raise like $5 million right now and still like this. And it's, it's insane. Um, I think if you're, I think if you're not in tech, no, I don't think the, just, I don't think the economy is, there's not a lot of options, I guess to say is how, is how it feels. I think if you are in tech and then there's a lot of these like downstream tech jobs, like you can be a product manager or you can be like a designer or if you're working, you work in, work in VC. I, I, I actually wrote, wrote an article like my like sophomore year at Stanford about how everyone wants to be in these like tech adjacent jobs that basically like don't require you to do the risk of starting a startup or like the difficulty of coding, but there's a sort of little cottage industry of tech jobs. So like that's, that's fine, and that's that's real growth, and that's good. But I feel like the story has been this sort of shift away from everything non-tech into tech. And then you look at where tech is right now, it seems to be like the, the VCs are really turning a lot of their attention to, to crypto. And my my read of that has been just like coming from VC and then moving a little bit more into crypto they're a little bit running out of ideas in the hard tech and trying to find something new that's going to produce that crazy, crazy growth that they got used to in the past, you know, 20, 30 years. Um, so yeah, if you are in tech, it's really smooth sailing. But I think if, if you're not, it's really tough out there. I don't know what to say. I'm, I, I'm, I'm surprised that people blame millennials for the financial crisis because they were like, not old enough to be blamed. I can't... <laughs> they really, they really do. Or, or I, I think it's also like, um, it's not quite like, it's not quite like they will say like, oh, it was their, if you, if you talk to someone in a more like, you know, they wouldn't say like, oh, it was their fault. But what I, there were a lot of, at least when I was growing up, these sort of like millennial takedown think pieces that were really pointing at things that were just financial. So it would be like, they're not having kids. They're, you know, they're unsettled. They keep switching from job to job. They only want to do internships. They're entitled. And it, it it makes sense that if you grew up in like a booming economy where everyone tells you that no matter what you study, no matter what you do, you're going to have this great job and you're going to have this great life. And then the economy crashes, you enter the workforce and you get completely screwed. And suddenly people are like, huh, you got like a creative writing degree. Like, good luck, um, that you would have a class of people who basically felt like they were entitled to more than they thought and kind of hadn't prepared mentally to struggle in that way. I do think that, I do think that Gen Z is more like, again, they're more, they're more resigned to this, to the situation. That's my like very intuitive cultural read on like Gen Z versus millennials. I think millennials were like really thought that they were going to have these like incredible careers handed to them, had that taken away and had a really hard time adjusting versus Gen Z is more like, yeah, no, I'm never going to have a house. Ha ha ha. Like, eh, you know, or, or, or they, so they, they either have that attitude or then they try and go into something weird like crypto or startups or like ha have a much higher bar for what they feel like is a appropriate career because they sort of implicitly understand that that's what that's what it's going to take to get the maybe the lifestyle that their parents had all right so let's have a numbers round emily what's your number this yes. week my number is 9.3 percent i know you love surveys so much felix this is a survey conducted by the freelance company upwork 
9.3% of respondents said they, they plan to move because they can now work from home, which is like a lot of people if you if you work it out to what percentage of the population, it's quite a lot. Um, of course, people say they're going to move. Who knows if they actually will move? But what we're seeing in real estate markets is a lot of people have moved <laughs> into a lot of places that normally don't see a lot of people moving into those places. I spoke to a broker near where I live in Westchester, and she said there's like no houses for sale right now. So something is happening. Is Westchester a good place to work from home from? Yeah. Well, it's like if you believe in the world of hybrid is the future, then you could live where I live because it's like a far, it's a pretty far commute from New York City. But if you only have to do it like two or three times a week, it makes perfect sense. Um, you know, and you get like kind of a country vibe whilst being near the city, sort of. But other smaller cities are also seeing people move there. I was going to say a lot of the sort of tech people I know, they don't really live anywhere anymore. Like it can be really cool because. You can just sort of go, you know, be like, oh, yeah, I split LASF Miami or I just split like New York, London, Austin or whatever. But it's also, I think, as a young person can be a little hard because there's no no more like hubs like used to be. You just kind of like live in Silicon Valley or live in New York and kind of you could expect everyone to be there. And now it's more it's also more weirdly more expensive because you have to support this lifestyle of being being everywhere um and you can't just kind of stay in one place and expect that to be your social life that is unmoored unmoored i'm telling you it's it's the unmoored generation my number is 97 percent, which i don't know like in the middle of the all of the crazy i kind of missed this story um but alliance global investors we remember them they had this thing called structured alpha a fund called Structured Alpha, which kind of imploded. And they've earmarked $4.8 billion to settle with investigators and regulators about what went on there. But we're finally getting a little bit of visibility into what went on. There's a lawsuit against them from the Getty Trust, you know, the foundation that runs the Getty Museum. They put $60 million into this Structured Alpha Fund in 2016, and then three years later, in 2019, it was 73 million. And this is like a fixed income fund. It's a bond fund. It's not a high risk stock, stock fund. It had risen to 73 million. So that's a decent return for a bond fund. And the idea is that it used like this option strategy to like boost the bond coupons a little bit. And then the pandemic hits in 2020. And very quickly, the amount of money they have in this fund is 2 million. It had gone down 97%. A bond fund. Yikes. Oh my God. And, and they, the whole point about this fund is they were like, we're, we do this hedging strategy, like we are going to protect you in the event of market dislocations. And then, yeah, not so much. Oh my goodness. Jennifer, what's your number? 28%, which is the percent of men who say that they're not having sex, which is up three times since 2008. It's men under 30. I thought that was like pretty weird. That seems yeah, weird. That, that, that seems and, bad. And, and women, it's gone up a lot as well, right? Women, it's gone up, but it used to be, and now blanking on the exact numbers, it used to be like equal men and women. And then since 2008, there was a big spike. Uh, men outpaced women by like 10%. I think it's like now like 28% men, 17% women from this little graphic. Okay. Why, why do you think? Because because of the social issues? Because we're also we socially earlier. alienated and interacting social with each other alienation. only through screens. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. You had a no, lot that's of that what I think. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why have sex when you can have a digital monkey? Exactly. <laughs> the digital monkey should fulfill all of your emotional needs because it's so cute, obviously. Well, I mean, if this continues, people have less babies, there'll be more jobs for everyone to choose from. And some of those problems... Well, that was that was why we did so well in Gen X. We were the smallest generation ever, and that's why we got jobs, Emily. One of okay. my friends actually was telling me this theory, which I thought was I thought was pretty sound. He was like, "All these, uh, all these like Gen Z kids are like saving and saving and saving because they think there's they they're not going to be able to buy a house. But someday, when when all the when all the boomers die, there's going to be way too many of these mass these massive massive empty houses and then the prices will go down so he was like yeah i'm not buying a house for a bit because like i think it's gonna think it's gonna go down so i was like Meh. i thought that was pretty good logic um but then they'll have like then they'll have like put off you know their their careers and their childhoods to you know 
make money to buy some house that they didn't really need to work for. The whole house thing is pretty overrated, but don't get me started on the house. Thing. Yeah, I'm 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 don't with you on it. like I'm 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 short houses. Don't don't do houses. It's a lie. Live your amazing, cool, techy, peripatetic life. I split my time between Singapore and the Maldives. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Why not? No, l- l- literally. And I think like um I think also there's been this like re which is good. This sort of like re-aesthetification of not having a house where now that you have this generation of people who like don't have houses, they're like making not having a house cool. Now it's kind of like boring yeah, like, to have You know like, like Elon Musk like, sold all of his houses? He's like, yeah. He has more babies than houses. Ginevra Davis, thanks so much for being with us. This has been absolutely illuminating. Thank you so much for having me. You guys are my first podcast. That's amazing. So you, can t- you can tick that one off your list. Thanks everyone for listening. We have a Slate Plus, which is going to be more of Gen Z and Ginevra. And thanks to Shana Roth for producing this show between Ireland, New York, and Paris. It's amazing what modern technology can do. We will be back next week with even more Slate Money. So, Emily, um, (laughs) I want to do a Slate Plus on I don't want to start a generational war, but... Uh, Yes, but it sounds... (laughs) extremely entitled and privileged to get to Stanford and be surrounded by so much money and have the opportunity to get six-figure job right out of college and say like, this sucks. My parents had it easier because no, they didn't. No parents had it easier. Every generation has hardships. It seems like the past 20 years, Felix, were worse than the first 20 years we had. Probably not. I mean, especially for if you think about like, People earning, like, very low wages, people who aren't white, like, things kind of were pretty, really awful and have actually gotten a little bit better in recent years. Um, There's been some really good younger generation movements around Black Lives Matter and other areas that are impressive and interesting to be like, well, I can't get as good of a job as, as my parents. I don't know. It just seems so privileged and entitled to me. Yeah, maybe, maybe it is. I guess the way I think about it is more like, The people that I know are fine by virtue of them being incredibly intelligent and incredibly forward-thinking and incredibly hardworking to get themselves into Stanford, get there on day one, angle themselves into, like, the right careers within Stanford, and then, yeah, you'll be be good. And and even then, like, it's kind of— one phenomenon I've really noticed in tech is just like how many kids are still just like buying things with their parents' money that you wouldn't think would be like things that you would need to buy with that kind of job, but they're still really pretty supported. And so if you're working back from there, that if that's the level of dedication you need to get what my mom describes coming out of college with an art history degree and not thinking too much about, oh, I want to get a job, I want to get a job, just kind of like gets three job offers, day she graduates and picks one and it's good and she gets an apartment in the city and it's that's not possible anymore and I think another thing that does really frustrate people is it's it's not that it's not possible to get a good job it's like the amount of almost like pre-work and constant focus and constant competition that's required something I want to capture in the metaverse piece is how much people just kind of want to they're just like frustrated and they want to opt out of that and and kind of get into something that feels like 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 a higher purpose, which is an interesting. I think there's almost a lot. You can you could pitch this almost from a, like a real like a religious angle. Like if you've been spending your entire your entire life focusing on like job money, job money, job money. It, it, th- these kids are they're also they're 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 very worn down. They're 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 anxious at really un, like kind of they're depressed and anxious at really unprecedented rates. And you can see it. We had just a, just another suicide at Stanford like a, a week ago. The transport numbers are up like crazy. Uh, like my my year, I think there were like four transports, which was still a lot. And what's then a like, what's a transport? Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> a transport is when someone drinks drinks so much that they have to like cart them off campus, bring them to the hospital. So that was that. This is like a very modern phenomenon. Um, and started like kind of like this is again didn't really didn't really happen in the 60s, 70s. Now, like my first third of my Stanford uh, this year, they had 19 transports. 
And these are usually kids just kind of like drinking themselves into oblivion. And so I think it's, maybe you can get a job and maybe it's fine, but the amount of effort required to get and kind of just like constant drain required to get into these professions, I think kids are really beaten down. And there's also not, there's not as much, there's not as much social infrastructure. Like I talked about this in the article, tend to have, you know, fewer friends, they're less healthy. They're doing way fewer activities outside of school. They're spending far less time with the friends they do have. They're online all the time. And then professional lives aren't, can't make up for that. So they're looking for, looking for something else. I would highly recommend anyone who hasn't listened to it, or even those of you who have, it repays the re-listen. Um, the episode we did with Daniel Markovitz, who has written about this at great length, is just amazing but this is an incredible insight and angle that it's really super interesting to to hear and i'm reminded of like a friend of mine who teaches at stanford and had a freshman come up to him and and be like hey there's an idea i've had which i want to talk to you about and he's like yeah what is it and he's like well first can you sign this nda <laughs> yes. No. Like, no, 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 literally, literally, you have you have these kids coming to Stanford, they're like 18, they'll have like a like a Calendly, like you want to meet with them and they're like, put time in my Calendly. God, and I'm depressing. like, you're a child, like, <laughs> s- stop, like, this is so and, it, and and it's it's funny, because I totally participated in this when I first got there, I was like, Oh, my God, I'm, be- I'm behind, you know, my friends were doing computer science, they're going to the career fair, there's no career fair for me yet. I'm not at the career fair. I now that I'm like, you know, almost graduating, I see the freshmen come in, and they're like, you see these, I don't know, nice, normal kids with like interests and hobbies. And, and they're like, Oh, I'm, I'm I need to get into consulting, because it's good for my optionality. I'm like, what the, what does that mean? Gen X, Gen X ruined the children. It's your fault, Emily, as the as the Gen X parent. It's all your fault. Yeah, I'm not a Gen X I parent. I see that. Right. You get to just be a bystander just watching it all go down. 